KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Today, a retrospective on our pandemic year. Trying to catch up with everything that's going on is tough, and I still cannot believe that he's gone. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. <music> Stories from the people and the communities that have suffered most. This whole thing has been very unfair. Um, we've seen so much trauma and so much death and so much tragedy, but it has not been evenly distributed. And what this year has taught us about the virus? and about ourselves. Join us for our special report on Pandemic Life, One Year On. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program. Shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. It's been just over a year since the COVID-19 pandemic was officially declared. A year of anxiety, hardship, confusion, and loss. A year like no other. We were told we were all in this together, but some communities suffered more than others. Many people untouched by the virus were hurt by its fallout, seeing their businesses and jobs evaporate. Now that there's a glimmer of light at the end of this long, dark tunnel, we're marking this anniversary with a look back and a look forward as we begin our series, Pandemic Life, One Year On. First up, KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman turns back the clock to last March. This time a year ago, pandemic hysteria was gripping the nation. The death toll was rising in New York City, while in San Diego, store shelves were out of cleaning supplies. Items like toilet paper and water became hard to find. And gun stores were seeing record sales to people like Daniel Frank of El Cajon. People are getting crazy over this coronavirus and... I want to be able to protect myself and protect my family. There weren't even 100 confirmed cases here yet, but San Diegans were already familiar with the virus. A month before, in February, hundreds of evacuees were flown in from Wuhan, China and quarantined at MCAS Miramar. That included Frank Wusinski and his three-year-old daughter, Annabelle. She doesn't understand what's going, you know, why mom's not here. Within days of the first evacuees arriving, San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher declared a crisis on February 14th. Today, acting out of an abundance of caution, the County of San Diego is taking an administrative action by declaring both a local emergency and a public health emergency. On March 9th, County Public Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten announced the first positive test for a San Diego County resident. I will not go into details about the case except to say that the case is a female in her 50s. This San Diego County resident is hospitalized and doing well. At the same time, numbers were rising statewide. Tragically, we now have six individuals uh, that have passed away. On March 15th, the governor would issue a first-of-its-kind order. We are calling for the home isolation of all seniors in the state of California. Newsom also took aggressive measures that day to begin mitigating the virus's spread. We are directing that all bars, nightclubs, wineries, 
brew pubs and the like uh, be closed in the state of California. We believe that this is a non-essential function. Indoor capacity at restaurants was cut in half and social distancing measures put into place. By this time, San Diego was feeling the financial impacts of COVID-19. Major conferences at the San Diego Convention Center were canceling. Schools were closing. Then San Diego State students, including freshman Chase Condorman, were sent home from their dorms. It's absolutely nuts that they gave us some 48 hours notice to get out of here. On March 19th, all Californians were ordered to stay at home. Let's bend the curve together. Let's not regret. Let's not dream of regretting. Go back, say, well, you know, we could have, would have, should have. Then on March 22nd, the pandemic took a deadly turn here. We will be reporting our first death uh, for the county of San Diego. The county's chief medical officer, Dr. Nick Yifantidis, had this message that day. Without alarming, but with dried-eyed realism, we are still in the eye of the storm. And we are asking you not to board up your windows, but to board up yourselves at home, please. A day after the first death in response to crowds at beaches and parks, then San Diego Mayor Kevin Faulkner took action. Now I am directing City of San Diego staff to move forward with the closure of all parks, beaches, boardwalks, bays, city lakes, and trails. Face coverings were not required in San Diego County until a local order went into effect on May 1st. There are 64,000 Americans who have died in the last two months. The danger that's presented is real, and you can't reopen an economy if you don't uh, have a handle on your public health situation. At first, it was hard to track the virus's spread. Samples had to be sent to the CDC lab in Atlanta for confirmation, and early on, you needed to be showing symptoms or have a doctor's referral to get a test. So this is the swab that's going in your nose. It's only going to go in about an inch to the mid-level here. It's it wasn't until early May when state-sponsored testing sites were opening up in San Diego for the general public. Okay, and your eyes might get a little watery, and here we go. As summer came, cases rose, and officials warned that we were heading in the wrong direction as parts of the economy began reopening. But it would still be months before the healthcare system saw its biggest test yet, with holiday-related surges in hospitalizations. We know people are hurting out there, and we know they're tired of the pandemic. You know what? We're damn tired of it, too. That was Scripps Health CEO Chris Van Gorder in December when the pandemic pushed the healthcare system to the brink. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. The staggering loss of life wrought by COVID-19 has been unavoidable over the past year. In San Diego County alone, nearly 3,500 have perished from a virus that's claimed the lives of more than 56,000 statewide. Perhaps the most significant impact of the global pandemic has been how we deal with grief and loss and how familiar these feelings have become to so many. Today, we share a personal story of loss. Jojo Regal is the longtime partner of beloved San Diego blues musician Tomcat Courtney, who tragically passed away earlier this year due to complications from the virus. Courtney, a Texas transplant who was a fixture of the San Diego music scene for decades, met Regal at one of his performances. The two became an inseparable team as she became his agent and keyboardist. Jojo Regal joined us by phone to share her thoughts and reflections on a year of change and tragedy. Jojo, welcome. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. You know, first, I just want to know, how have you been doing? 
I'm still trying to uh, trying to catch up with everything that's going on. It's tough, you know, ever since uh, Tom passed away, and I'm still in denial, and I still cannot believe that uh, Tom is gone. As sudden, the impact of COVID is very strong, and people think that the COVID is a joke, but it's true. You know, in my experience, having somebody getting that COVID, it's unbelievable. You know, you can be with them uh, when the time needs, you know, you cannot visit them, and and it's, it's like you cannot even talk to them in the phone. And for me, you know, that's the hardest uh, decision I have to make when they call. They told me that uh, he's not going to make it no more, you know. I mean, talk to me about the, the pandemic a bit, if you can. What were your thoughts when this pandemic first began? And, and when did you and, and Tomcat realize that this was something serious? Well, when we got both got sick, you know, around December, um, Tom and I is not feeling good. And I keep telling Tom, Tom, let's go and have it checked. And he said, that's okay. No, Tom, I was telling him, we need to go and have it test. So we finally, uh, we decided to go in one of the clinics here. And then he's he's, uh, running out of breath already. And I was telling telling him, you know, um, I think we need, uh, I have to go call 911. And he said, no, I'm, I'm okay. Uh, I just need a rest. No, I told him, no, I'm going to call 911. So he's, before Christmas, he's in and out in the hospital already. I want to talk about a Tomcat, though. I, I know he was a prolific performer, and I can imagine that the, the closing of music venues due to COVID must have been hard on him. Very hard. The last time he played, he played at Proud Mary is end of February. He just turned 91. And when all the clubs closed down, and he starts staying home, I know that he's going down because he loves his music. He don't care if he got paid more or he got paid less. As long as he plays his music and he sees that people is having fun, that's all that matters for him. You know, music for him is his life. There was a significant outpouring of affection from the community following his passing. Was that a small comfort in what was no doubt a very difficult time? Yes, you know, uh, you know, I thank everybody, you know, who supported him. And I cannot believe I, I got flowers, people sending me flowers here. I got calls, I got messages that I don't even know. These people that I don't even know, know where to thank them, you know. The support that I'm getting is unbelievable, and I cannot thank them enough. Before, I'm doubting, you know, I was I was telling Tom, Tom, why you stay here in San Diego? Because, you know, it's like the way they, they treated him, it, it's unfair. He's been here for 40 years, 50 years, playing blues, and he, he got recognized just recently. He got the best. He, uh, he become a blues, uh, best blues band, and then he, they give him uh, another award and things like that. But it's kind of late. But he, you know, for him, it's not being recognized. It's like once he see people jumping and having fun when he play, that's that's the that's that's what he wants, you know. But he loves San Diego. This is where he wants to live. But the support that I got when he passed away. 
you know, I feel bad thinking that San Diego will never recognize him, but I'm mistaken, you know, because a lot of support that I got from these people that I don't even know, that I guess some don't even re- uh, realize how how these people love him, you know, and I, I know that he knows that now. Well, we thank you, and, and uh, we, we too miss Tom Cat. Thank you. Not all communities have been hit equally hard by the COVID-19 pandemic. In San Diego, a map and a list of zip codes tells the story. By far the most COVID cases and serious illness have been in predominantly Latino neighborhoods. 44% of those who have lost their lives to COVID in San Diego County are Latino. And the bulk of the jobs lost during the shutdown have been in the hospitality and service industries occupied by a largely Latino workforce. The pandemic has been an awful experience for everyone. But for many Latino families and communities, it has been devastating. Joining me is Dr. Christian Ramers, the Assistant Medical Director with Family Health Centers. Dr. Ramers is Cuban-American and works in many predominantly Latino communities in San Diego County. Dr. Ramers, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Maureen. Latinos make up 34% of the San Diego population. 55% of the COVID-positive cases in the county have been Latino. What does a statistic like that tell you? Well, Maureen, I think it's a classic example of a health disparity. You know, if things, if all things were equal for all people, we would have representation of diseases uh, and of, of problems by the proportion that that population makes up in the population. So um, the fact that there is a much higher case rate, hospitalization rate, and death rate, as you've uh, outlined in the beginning here, just shows us that there's some inequity, there's some disparity going on. Um, and I think now that we're aware of this, it's time to really look at the, the underlying causes. You know, over the past year, we've heard that unequal health care and resources before COVID made the Latino population especially vulnerable to this pandemic. Would you agree? I would agree, and I think it's a very complicated thing to put your finger on. We, we in medicine and public health call this the social determinants of health, and it's not just one thing. It's really a, a whole conglomeration of many different factors, language ability, education, nutrition, transportation, uh, and poverty itself, all these things that really stack the deck against these populations uh, and make things uh, more likely in terms of COVID infections, COVID hospitalizations, and COVID deaths. We've heard a lot about intergenerational living conditions, especially in the Latino community. How much of an impact do you think that had? You know, I've seen in my own anecdotal experience that it has a major impact. I've seen many families where, you know, perhaps an essential worker brings the infection home because they are uh, expected to be at work and may or may not have adequate uh, personal protective equipment. And then very soon it, it travels to the spouses, the siblings, and the parents, unfortunately, who are, are more vulnerable. So it absolutely has had an impact on, on those and, and really probably tips that, uh, that death number because when we have grandparents living with younger essential workers, that's a really high-risk situation in terms of transmission and death from COVID. And you make the point that when people were told to work from home, that was impossible for workers in service industries. Here's Nancy Maldonado. She's CEO of the Chicano Federation. The consequences and the fear of 
having to choose between going to work and providing for your family and knowing that you are increasing the risk of them being exposed to a potentially deadly virus, the the impact that that has on so many families across San Diego, I, I can't even imagine. So, Dr. Ramers, how did people still going to work affect the number of COVID cases among Latinos? Well, I certainly saw this exact situation that Nancy described play out over and over again in the COVID patients that I've helped treat in the last year. And it is an impossible decision. Um, Many of my patients really had no choice but to go to work for their own paycheck to put food on the table, but also because they were told to do so by their bosses and they didn't have any sick leave. Uh, Some of them even were told to go to work even though they had symptoms and were clearly potentially um, spreading the disease, whether or not they had personal protective equipment. So what I think this reveals, again, is we can look at the numbers and we can understand that, but it, but we should really look beneath the numbers and look at the structural inequities that have really been at play here, really for decades, um, to, to give us these results. Along those lines of looking beneath the numbers, can you give us an idea of the kinds of situations Latino families faced when they came to family health centers over the past year? Yeah, I'm reminded of a particular patient who um, worked at a sandwich shop and, and again, was told to continue to come to work whether she wanted to or not, was was really frightened to uh, talk about her symptoms to her boss. And in the end, when she even showed up at work with a fever, was was told to just keep on working. Uh, she ended up having a, a moderate case of COVID and then also had uh, transmission within her own household. So it's the same story that we've seen play out over and over again in our county. Uh, it just it's not a real fair distribution of the disease. The one feeling that's that's um, staying with me after a year of, of dealing with this is this whole thing has been very unfair. Um, we've seen so much trauma and so much death and so much tragedy, but it has not been evenly distributed. You know, following up on your idea of this pandemic being unfair in its distribution of grief and loss, it's also being unfair when it comes to how vaccines are being distributed. Although Latinos make up 55% of cases here in San Diego, apparently they only make up 18% of vaccinations. So what do you think needs to be done there? Maureen, I'm glad you brought that up. There has been a couple of analyses looking at vaccine rates by zip code compared to case rates by zip code. And again, you just see a very striking disparity in the numbers. The top three zip codes in terms of vaccination receipt are uh, La Jolla, Del Mar, and Coronado. Um, And then you have other places in the South Bay, which have clearly been more impacted, much lower down on the list. And you can start by explaining, well, that's because of the phases. And that's because initially we vaccinated those above age 65 and those who are healthcare workers. And that's fine, but I would ask everyone to look a little bit deeper and ask, well, why are the retirees in San Diego predominantly white? And why are the healthcare workers predominantly white? And why don't we have a healthcare workforce that represents the demographics of our county a little bit better? So we're getting there. There's a lot of outreach being done. The county has placed vaccination sites in the South Bay. There are things like Project Save that are reserving spots for people from the hardest hit neighborhoods. And certainly at Family Health Centers, we are doing the best we can to outreach to all of our patients. It just takes extra effort to push back against uh, decades of structural inequity. And what kinds of extra resources do you think the Latino community will need to truly recover from this pandemic? Well, this gets a little out of my expertise in terms of making policy, uh, but I think starting with really basic worker protections and sick leave is something that really would have helped, uh, helped allow people to protect themselves, uh, to not be forced to come into their essential worker jobs. 
um, things like that. Um, obviously, access to healthcare, access to information uh, in their, their preferred language. I think those are all things that are going to help going forward. I have been speaking with Dr. Christian Ramers. He's the Assistant Medical Director with Family Health Centers. Dr. Ramers, thanks a lot. Thank you so much for the interest. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more mcasd.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. Today we bring you a special program, Pandemic Life One Year On, recognizing the impact the COVID-19 virus has had on the lives of all San Diegans. Baking bread became a popular pastime for many during this pandemic year. It relieved boredom, made up for absent bakery goods, and filled homes with a comforting aroma. But for some, it became an anchor in the storm. Author Marie V. Sullivan sometimes baked as she received calls from hospitals anxious to use her Tagalog-Filipino interpreter skills to communicate with COVID patients. In a short story about one soul-wrenching call, Sullivan writes, I see her shrink into her pillow, breathless at the thought of her remaining days, one hour folding into the other, slipping away into a solitary end. Tears fall on the dough as I coil it into a bun. Even her God cannot help her now. Her short story, Pandemic Bread, is part of San Diego's Decameron Project, and it's a pleasure to welcome Marivi Sullivan. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Maureen. Now, how did baking bread get involved in your work as a translator during the pandemic? I've always cooked or baked when I run into like writer's block because I feel like I need to be creating something. If it's not words on a page, at least it's food on a plate. So um, when the pandemic hit and I started getting all of these distressing calls, Obviously, I was too distressed myself to continue writing, so I would turn to baking. It became kind of this routine where I would bake something, and obviously, there are only two of us in the household, and that's too much sugar for us. So we would make a habit of walking to these people's houses in Kensington or in North Park and just giving them half of whatever I made. And, you know, in that way, we kind of continued with our sense of community, we're able to socially distance and get outside of the house and, you know, be with people, even though we couldn't really be indoors with them. Did the calls from hospitals frequently involve elderly Filipino patients as it does in the short story? Yeah, for the most part, um, because uh, the elderly ones tend to be the first generation immigrants. And even though they, many of them have a rudimentary understanding of English, and actually some of them can express themselves in English when you're under duress, it's really hard to think in any other language except your mother tongue. And you really don't want to be bothered because A, you're, you're in pain or um, you're worried. And to have to translate that into a second language is just more distressful for them. And I find that medical professionals um, have an easier time of it when they're explaining uh, a difficult procedure like, oh, now we may have to give you oxygen or we might have to do a colonoscopy. And that all doesn't sound very good in English because there's not a translation 
a direct translation in Tagalog. So they depend on an interpreter to explain in context what exactly is happening to their bodies. The patients were alone. They were separated from family in the hospital. And I'm wondering, did you feel a special obligation to them because of that in your translating work? Oh, definitely. When they're speaking to someone in their language, they cling to that voice because for them, it is the more reassuring sound. So towards the end of the call, frequently, they'll be calling me ate, which means older sister, which is, you know, a common kind of honorific where like they they relate to you on a familiar level. So and it also implies that they trust you. So they'll call you older sister. Is this true what they're saying? Older sister, does this need to be done? There was this one woman who, she was she was very upset because she kept saying over and over again, why have they tied me down, released me from these ties? And the doctor was like, well, we tied you down because you kept pulling off your oxygen. And if you do that again, you will die. So, you know, in that case, it was really crucial that I explained it to her in a language and in a way that she could understand. How has doing this work affected you personally? Uh, it's very stressful, uh, which is why I started baking uh, when I did these calls, because for me, I, I get very emotional. Like many times I've come close to tears or I have been crying. Like in that that one story, I actually was crying by the end of the call because I, I really feel for these people. I, I will never see them. I will never know where they are. I probably will never hear from them again. But I feel that in this one particular moment where everything was so crucial, so fraught um, for me to have to bear witness to that. Uh, you know, it's kind of a privilege, but it's also very, it's very hard on you because even if it's a 10 minute call and sometimes the calls have gone on for as long as an hour, you feel a certain investment. I mean, you can't help it because you're talking to this voice on the phone and they're clinging to your voice and saying, older sister, is this true? And you have to convey generally the bad news. So it is, it is stressful. But at the same time, I would rather be doing that than have them try to understand in English what needs to be done. Because better they hear it from someone in the language that they are able to grasp than to have someone say, we're doing this and this and this, and to have it done with them without them fully understanding what exactly is going to happen. I've been speaking with Marivy Sullivan. Marivy, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Maureen. A year ago, we didn't even really know what to call the new virus that had already shut down an entire province in China. As it gained traction in the U.S., we had weeks of mixed messages on wearing masks, about wiping off packages, and about how contagious or how deadly this virus was. It was the beginning of the learning curve on COVID-19 that is still keeping researchers and scientists busy one year later. Over these difficult months, much has been learned about the disease, information that has led to the creation of effective vaccines and new treatments. But this viral strain and its host of effects on the human body still has secrets to reveal. Joining me is Dr. Eric Topol. He is founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Dr. Topol, welcome back. Thanks, Maureen. Great to be with you again. When you first heard about this outbreak of novel coronavirus, and especially when it began showing up in the U.S., what kinds of mistaken assumptions were being made about COVID-19 early on? 
Well, there were many, but uh, you know, one thing, of course, was that uh, there was not an adequate recognition of this aerosol and re- and the thought that it was just liquid droplets. So, if we had respected that from the outset, the mask protection would have helped uh, right from the start. Uh, another one is the assumption that it was just a respiratory virus because in Wuhan, there was pneumonia as a primary presentation. But it turns out this virus can do so much more havoc inside the body, uh, in other organs, uh, including the heart and the kidneys, the, the brain. So there wasn't enough appreciation for the scope uh, of this. And, you know, I think uh, the biggest problem was that in order to not fly blind, you had to have uh, rapid testing and had to be scalable. And we still, a year later, have not gotten that right in this country. And that's really put us in a a decided disadvantage. What do we know about the COVID-19 virus that makes it possible for some people to test positive with no symptoms, yet other people die from it? Is it something about the virus that makes it able to manifest itself asymptomatically and also deadly in other people? Or is it something about the people who get the virus? Right. Well, it turns out there's both sides of this. That is, there are factors in people that set them up more predisposed to having uh, serious illness. And it's not just clinical factors, you know, that, for example, if they have diabetes and obesity and other uh, coexisting conditions. We also know some genetic factors that we know some people have antibodies to interferon, which is our first line defense. So there are factors in people that make them more susceptible, particularly, you know, uh, men more than women in general and older age, because the immune system responds differently as we get older. The term immunosenescence is used there. But there are also virus factors. So as the virus has evolved, it's become uh, apparent that a few variants are of particular concern. One that's especially in San Diego now, the UK variant known as B117. And this one is more transmissible. So the virus has changed its behavior and it's at least 50% more infectious and also more serious illness. So it's never simple, Maureen. It's a combination of things. Right. We have also learned during this year that there are a whole list of COVID complications from blood clots to long-term debilitating illness. Do we know what makes this disease so complex? No, there's mysteries and it's humbling. The long COVID story by which some people, about 10% or 20%, so it's sizable when you think of the denominator of people who have had infections. These are people who go months and even a year now who've never been right. And some of them have very serious disabling uh, symptoms. And we don't understand why certain people are susceptible to long COVID. Uh, And we have only seen recently that some of these people may be improved by getting vaccinated, which is an exciting advance. Uh, It's only anecdotal right now, but perhaps it'll pan out with further study. 
let's talk about the vaccines. You know, there's been truly an amazing learning curve in the past year that has resulted in these vaccines. We were told the earliest we could see a successful vaccine would be 18 months, and yet it took less than a year. How is that possible? Well, I actually didn't think it would be possible. The average time to get a vaccine from the identification of the of the bug, the pathogen, is eight years. And the fact that this was done in months within the same calendar year, so the sequence of the virus January 10th and uh, large-scale trials, 75,000 participants in November, uh, in the early part of November, I mean, we're talking about, you know, 10, 11 months. I mean, it's this is something, it's one of the greatest medical science triumphs in history, if not the greatest, because we faced a very serious existential threat uh, throughout the world here. And that is going to be markedly blunted by the rapidity and the efficacy. I mean, these are the vaccines that were first through, the mRNA vaccines from um, Pfizer and Moderna, 95% efficacy. We consider that superhuman because we can't get efficacy, you know, as people at that level when we get an infection. So this is extraordinary. It's something that is quickly seeing uh, in countries where they have been very aggressive with vaccination, like in Israel and the UK, and we're stepping up recently. These vaccines are going to save the day, and they're also remarkably safe. Dr. Topol, what do you especially still want to learn about COVID-19? Well, there are many unknowns that are important, like, for example, how long will the vaccines that we take now carry us? Will it be two or three years? Will it be as long as the original SARS in 2003, where people had antibodies uh, from the natural infection for now 17 years? years. Uh, I think the long COVID story is really important. The involvement of the heart with COVID is really noteworthy because we've seen some sudden deaths among athletes and, uh, you know, it can cause this inflammation of the heart. It It seems very rare, but it's a serious matter that we have to respect as well. Maureen, there's just so many things that we still have to learn. It's actually remarkable progress that has been made, for sure. But there's a long way to go before we say we fully understand the biology of the virus and the remedies, that is, better drugs that we could take uh, once someone had an exposure that would neutralize the virus, inactivate it right away without having to get an intravenous infusion. So we still have room for better drugs. We uh, hope that the vaccines will be not needing a booster or tweak for the variants. So, you know, it's still in the zone of uncertainty, but my goodness, we've made uh, immense progress. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute. Dr. Topol, thank you very much. Uh, Thanks so much, Maureen. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman.
Today, we bring you a special program, Pandemic Life One Year On, recognizing the impact the COVID-19 virus has had on the lives of all San Diegans. As vaccination efforts against COVID-19 ramp up worldwide, transmission rates and hospitalizations seem to be trending downward. And while this comes as good news to a beleaguered global health infrastructure, the issue of variant forms of COVID-19 continues to generate concern among health officials across the globe. How do these mutated strains of COVID pop up? And how do they complicate our efforts to fight against a global pandemic? Well, joining me today to break down everything you need to know about COVID-19's variants is Dr. Davy Smith, head of the Division of Infectious Disease and Global Public Health at UC San Diego. Dr. Smith, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Dr. Smith, can you break down exactly how different variants of a virus come into existence? I can try. So we're basically watching viral evolution take place. Over the past year and a half, uh, we have a new virus that has uh, trying to make a new home in humans. It was previously pretty happy in bats and uh, it had adapted to bats pretty well and knew how to infect them and knew how to spread among them. And now that jumped over to us. And at the beginning, it was good enough to get started. So that's what we saw. And now that the virus has been living with us and replicating amongst our population and the more viral replication that occurs within the population, the better it has a chance of adapting to us. And that's exactly what we're seeing. So it's now making what we call variants, meaning mutations that are different than the original strain. And those mutations are basically changing the structure of little parts of the virus to be able to infect us better and to be able to spread better. How many variants of COVID-19 do we currently know about? Well, every mutation probably could be considered a variant, but what we really are interested in what we call our variants of concern. And these are um, viruses that are mutated from the original strain that we then see spread within a population. And we're looking at hundreds of different types of those variants that are uh, spreading in our population. And some of those that raise to the level of being concerning, so variants of concern, we're actively tracking around 20 some odd of those. And what do we know about the different variants, those specifically those variants of concern? Yeah, so what we're really interested in is that the virus has a particular protein called a spike protein. And that protein engages in a human mechanism at the, what's called an ACE2, but it's a, it's a little protein that sits on our cell. And the virus needs to unlock that protein to get into our cell. And it's different than the one in the bat, but it's close enough to where the original virus could do it. How much more deadly or transmissible um, is that variant? So those two things are, are, un, are not necessarily the same. So there's no reason to think that the virus wants to kill us. So in terms of it being deadly, um, we don't think that evolution really works that way. If anything, the virus doesn't want to kill us at all. It, it wants to just live happily in us and have us spread it to all the different friends that we have um, that are close to us. And the longer that it can do it without killing us, the better for the virus. But the virus does want to increase transmissibility. So how it does that is it increases the amount of viruses that it produces. So when somebody gets infected, maybe it produces 10 in one person or 100 in another or 1,000 or 10,000 or 10 billion. But the more that it can produce of its offspring, the more likely it is to be transmitted to somebody else. Now, that's the transmissibility. And we do know that those variants um, do increase their offspring. So they have an increased replication rate. 
and that increases infectivity. Now, sometimes the more viruses that are produced within a person means that it can be more pathogenic. Um, and we're still, the jury is still out on that, but um, people are looking very closely at it. Will vaccines offer protection against variant forms of COVID-19? We think so. We don't know exactly to what extent that the viral evolution will impact vaccine responses. We do know that the virus is also evolving to be able to get into that uh, little receptor called ACE2, so better to get into us. But it's also evolving away from our human immune responses. So when someone gets infected, they make an antibody. When they get a vaccine, they make an antibody. And the virus comes in and it wants to evolve away from those antibodies as well. So we would expect that over time, the viral evolution, these variants will uh, have decreased susceptibility or they will uh, be able to evade our immune responses like antibodies. And this might mean that our first generation of vaccines don't work so well against the new variant. So we'll need to make new vaccines like second or third generation vaccines. How does the mutation of a virus into a variant form affect your or affect our ability rather to fight it? Exactly. So if the variant has evolved away from an antibody, so let's say I got a vaccine or I was infected with the SARS-CoV-2 and uh, I made an antibody and that antibody was really good at killing that virus. But the virus is like, oh, I, if I change these proteins around, then that antibody no longer works. Uh, that's exactly how those variants can get around our immune responses, our antibody responses. Do you think that the reality of mutating viruses underscores the importance of vaccination efforts against COVID-19? Yeah, so this is this is the really important part. So the more that the virus circulates in our population, so it spreads from one person to another person to another person, or it grows throughout the whole world, the more time it has within us to learn how to better adapt to us. So adapt to getting into our body, adapt to spread between people, and our, its ability to adapt away from our immune responses. So the best the thing we could do is to reduce the amount of viral circulation in our population. So to do that, that means vaccination is what we have at the moment. So the more of us that get vaccinated, the less that the virus will be able to uh, survive in our community and the less time it'll have to figure out how to make new variants of concern. How has our understanding of COVID-19 changed as we continue to learn more about it, uh, about its many variants? Every, all the research now on these variants of concern are supercharged. So we are rapidly learning more and more and more. And the way that we're doing it is sequencing as many variants as we can. So as people um, get tested and we find that they're positive, we take those viral isolates and we sequence those isolates. And then we can track whether or not they had one of these variants of concern or maybe a new variant that might become a new variant of concern in the future. So once we started uh, looking for these variants of concern, Many laboratories and researchers across the world really dove deep into sequencing them so we could track them. And before we leave, I want to go back to that question about the virus and if it is more deadly. Is it that we have no reason to believe that it's deadly because that's typically not how viruses mutate, or is it because that's what research currently says? We, we can see that there's more viruses there. We can see um, that it's spreading more in our population, but we haven't seen a big effect of more people being hospitalized or dying with these new variants. 
There are some preliminary reports that say that that might be true with one variant versus another variant. But to be honest, I haven't seen any convincing evidence to say that these new variants are more deadly. I've been speaking with Dr. Davy Smith, head of the Division of Infectious Disease and Global Public Health at UC San Diego. Dr. Smith, thank you very much. Thank you. The COVID-19 pandemic has turned all our lives upside down. But now, as more people get vaccinated every day, there's hope that we can eventually do the things we used to. We talk to people around the community to find out what they're looking forward to once the pandemic is over. Here's what some of them had to say. My name is Catherine Garcia. I live in San Diego, California. And the one thing I can't wait to do once the pandemic is over is going to a concert again and feeling the energy of being in a sweaty crowd, all connected by the music that we love. Hi, my name is Carla Beltran and I live in San Isidro, uh, California. And um, what I'm most excited about when it comes to this pandemic after it's over is Uh, traveling. I love to travel and um, I'm looking forward to maybe getting on an airplane and going somewhere far, um, maybe like to Europe. And one of the places I'd really love to visit is uh, Switzerland. So maybe maybe I'll get to do that after this is all over. Hi, my name is Florizel Yasuhara and I live in San Diego, California in the Claremont community area. And what I'd really love to do when this pandemic is over is share a bowl of bright green tea with my friends. And this is something that we haven't had a chance to do since last March. And we really miss one another. We see each other virtually on Zoom, but it's just not the same. Hi, I'm Kevin Davis. I live in North Park in San Diego. The first thing I want to do after the pandemic is over is travel to get out of the house. I'd like to visit friends and family in Tucson, in Denver, Victoria in British Columbia, New York City and that area, Washington DC and Baltimore in that area, and in Florida, Orlando and Fort Lauderdale. And for fun, I'd like to go to Las Vegas, maybe, or to uh, London in England. Hello, my name is Jeanette Cutchins. I'm from San Diego and Mira Mesa. Before COVID-19 struck, I was traveling a lot. I mean, a lot, like three to four times a year, maybe, out of the country. And I was dancing a lot. When I wasn't traveling, I was dancing. Or when I'm traveling, I'm dancing. (laughs) If it's a cruise, I'm dancing in the ship. Um, So after this... COVID-19 is done and everyone has been vaccinated, hopefully, and we're all safe to go out. I would like to go back to that again, to travel and to dance. That piece was produced by Emmeline Mohebi. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. 
We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.